What a blessing it is to come and worship with people of like precious faith. There is nothing really in the world as satisfying or as important as being together in the Lord's in the Lord's church. We're living in a day when the church is being more and more viewed as non-essential. In really in lots in lots of ways. The essential nature of gathering together has been has been abused and adulterated and some seem to think that gathering before a screen is as is as good as meeting in person and i'm here to tell you it is not i hear people say oh i met I met them face-to-face on the computer screen. No, you didn't meet them face-to-face. Face-to-face is a person-to-person meeting. That's what we're commanded to do. And that's for a reason. Because you cannot reach out and help people, encourage people from that distance that need your gift to be used with them. That's why we're called to gather. And in gathering, we come together and there's a unity that is built around the Lord Jesus Christ and around the doctrines of Scripture that keep us all steady. Otherwise, we, f- we fly off into splinters and error and all kinds of things begin to take over, and the result of that is evil. And so, that's just a little something I've been thinking about over the last week or two. Turn with me to John chapter 1. For those of you that are visiting with us, we are in a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of John. Uh, We started uh, a few months back, and... We are just plotting our way through, which has been the the norm over these years. We just start and we plot our way through. We finish, we go somewhere else and start again. And uh, so today we are, I, I've, been, I've been looking forward to getting to this particular passage. We're looking today at uh, verse... Well, actually, the section is verses 29 to 34. We'll center our thoughts today on verse 29. And this is what it says. The next day, he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. 
And John bore witness and saw the Spirit. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. Now we've discovered thus far in our study of this first chapter of John's Gospel that the key to effective ministry, to effective spiritual adventure or endeavor is humility. If we expect to, to have the power of God and the blessing of God upon us in His work of any sort, we must be humble before Him. There is no room to allow for self-aggrandizement or elevation in our own eyes or elevation in the eyes of others. This is not about us. It's about Him. This John did to perfection. There's no time that we see John taking the spotlight for himself. There's no time when he tried to elevate himself. No time when he tried to preach a message that was not pointing to Christ. It was all about the one he came to introduce. The Apostle Paul writes the same things in Romans chapter 12. I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. He writes to the Ephesians, I, wa- I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. Jesus said in Luke 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone, he who humbles himself will be exalted. The time for exaltation will come. But it will not come In this life. Yes we give honor to whom honor is due. And praise to whom praise is due. But the one to whom honor is given. And praise is given. Should not allow that honor or praise. To elevate themselves. But rather elevate Christ. And so that brings us to the to the verse that we're on. Looking at today. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now this term, the next day, is most likely the day day after John had been in dialogue with the Jews. But it also starts a series of days and events that end or culminate in the wedding at Cana and the first miracle that Jesus performed. Jesus has now appeared on the scene 
And John saw him coming toward him, that is, approaching him. And John speaks directly to his identity. We've already seen from verse 26 and further into this chapter of verse 32 and 33 that John recognized Jesus as the Messiah. Now there are two words that he uses here for the word for looking, for actually seeing someone. And there are the words saw, John saw, and then he says, behold. The first word, saw, is a general look. It's a, a look that, that is, it's called a historical present. It, that is, it's, it's supposed to cause a picture to be drawn. So what is the picture that, that John is dry, drawing for us here? He's drawing the picture of Jesus moving toward him in the crowd of people that had obviously gathered around. And it causes us to, to see that. So can you picture in your mind John as he, in amongst all these people, he points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. After John had baptized Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, he departed to the wilderness to be tempted. Matthew 4 says immediately after his baptism, he went into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And he was there for several weeks being tempted. And now, probably Jesus has most probably is returned from that temptation in the wilderness to where John is, where John was baptizing. He had possibly been there the day before because John alludes to the fact that the Messiah, the one he came to introduce, was among them and that they did not know him. And so he comes from the temptation in the wilderness and he approaches John the Baptist. Now John approach, saw him approaching and he cries out, Behold the Lamb of God. The word behold is the second word for looking. And it's a word that has the idea of to gaze at with a, with a perception, to see with understanding. John wanted his hearers to see Christ and understand who he was. Remember what God had said to Isaiah? Go and preach to this people and tell them that they will not hear. They will not see. And now John is pointing the way of people to Christ so that they'll see and understand who he is. This command that's given by John, it's a command, by the way, he's telling the people to look, look at this one. He is the Lamb of God. 
Understand who He is. Look to Him now without delay. Don't procrastinate. Isaiah 45, verse 22 from the New King James. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Look. God told Moses to make a serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up. And tell the people, look. Anyone who looks will live. So this is not just gazing at something and then going on by your way and forgetting about it. This is looking with an idea to get understanding and perception so that you know what you're looking at. This is what John wanted to accomplish. So looking at Jesus without knowing who he is would be of no use to anyone. You could say to people on the street, who is Jesus Christ? And they may say, well, I've heard of him. He's a great man or he's in the Bible or whatever. But if you don't know who he is, knowing his name won't help. John wanted the people that were with him to know him. He wanted to know that he was indeed the one who would come to deliver his people from their sins. And this he did by saying who he was. I want you to notice too that there is a definite article with the word lamb. This was not just any lamb. This was the lamb. The unique one, the only one who could take away sin. He was the distinct sacrificial lamb, different than all others that had come before him. So when John says that he was the lamb of God, he was telling the people to look to this lamb. You've seen all kinds of other lambs. You've even brought them yourself to the temple. The priest has taken them and slain them for years in the temple on the Day of Atonement. But he is the one to look for. It's the same message that we preach today. This message has not changed in 2,000 years. This phrase, Lamb of God, is so familiar to us that we don't even think about the depth of what it means. There are no Old Testament uses of this phrase. But there was, <clears throat> there is a, a use in one of the apocryphal books, which are not considered a part of the canon of Scripture. And it was written in the second century, and this is what it says. Honor Judah and Levi, for from them shall rise for you the Lamb of God, saving all nations by grace. Well, we can't count that necessarily as part of Scripture, but it is certainly true nonetheless. The term really didn't have great significance until it was applied to Jesus by John himself. It is certainly a part of the prophetic language of the Old Testament. For example, Jeremiah 11, verse 19. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter, 
I did not know it was against me they devised schemes, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. Isaiah 53, verse 7, a very familiar one for all of us. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. Like a sheep, before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's also reflected in the Old Testament use of the lambs that were brought for sacrifice. Every morning and every evening, the people brought lambs and they were sacrificed in the temple for the sins of the people of Israel. This was the command of Moses to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 29. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs. And by the way, that word lambs, the same word that John uses here in chapter 1. This is the, uh, he says, two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. Can you see the amount of blood that was shed in Israel? To, to, in an effort to redeem them from their sins, and yet the blood of bulls and goats, lambs, animals would never take away sin. Only the blood of the Lamb of God could take away sin. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. Perhaps as Jesus was approaching John, there would be the familiar flock of lambs being led to the temple. For people to purchase. So that they could offer the lambs. There. Certainly would be a vivid illustration of the sacrificial lamb of God. As John calls him here. At any rate the concept of the sacrifice of the lambs. Was well known to every Israelite. They knew that the forgiveness of sin and the atonement was in the blood sacrifices. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. No one was acceptable to God without a suitable substitute dying as a sacrifice. Leviticus 17 verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. It all started with God making the first blood sacrifice in the garden and clothing Adam and Eve with the skins of the animals that he killed. In Genesis 3 verse 21. Then again, in Genesis 22, we see Abraham, who knew of the lamb offering, who knew of the lamb sacrifice, but did not have a lamb. 
And his son says, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. That was a prophetic statement. God did not provide a lamb on that day. He provided a ram, a sheep that was caught in the thicket. But he did provide a lamb. And John says, here he is. Look, this is the one. This is the lamb of God. Of course, there's the Passover lamb that was sacrificed each year in the atonement for the atonement of the nation. In Exodus 12 and Mark chapter 14 speaks of it. So this phrase, lamb of God, is not found anywhere else in the New Testament except here in John. It is exclusive to John the Baptist. There are other places where Jesus is referred to as a lamb but not as the Lamb of God, specifically in those words. For example, turn to Acts chapter 8. Look at verse 32. And then we're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Acts chapter 8. Stephen has... um, Preached his sermon. He was uh, he was caught up to meet the eunuch on the road to Damascus, and the eunuch was reading in the passage like this, verse thirty-two. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this: "Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter; like a lamb." Before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Do you know who you're reading about? Who is this person? Is he talking about himself or someone else? The eunuch said. And it says that he, that Philip, I said Stephen before, it was actually Philip. Philip preached to him, Jesus. First Peter 1 verse 19. That we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So this title, Lamb of God, is but one of many titles that we find in this chapter as we go through to the end of chapter 1. There are other titles given to Jesus in this chapter. For example... In verses 38 and 49, he's called rabbi, which means teacher. In verse 41, he's called Messiah. And we're going to do a little, when we get to verse 41, we're going to do a little study on the word Messiah. It's a very interesting word. I'll save it until then. Uh, In verses 34 and 49, he's called the Son of God. In verse 49, he's called the King of Israel. In verse 51, he's called the Son of Man. And in verse 45, he is called him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Many titles that Christ receives here in just this very short 
passage of Scripture. Israel was looking for a Messiah who would be a great prophet, a great king and conqueror. But instead, God sent them a lamb. Now, when you're wanting to defeat an army, you're not, you don't look for lambs. You look for lions. But the lion of the tribe of Judah will one day come. And he will defeat the armies of this world. But first he had to come as the lamb. Now we see the mission of the lamb. Notice the phrase at the latter part of verse 29. The mission of the Lamb was to take away the sin of the world. Jesus is called the Lamb of God because it indicates His sacrifice on the cross. Lambs had died in Israel for centuries. But this Lamb would be the ultimate sacrifice, not only for the Jewish nation, but also for the world. John MacArthur writes with this brief statement, The prophet John made it clear that Messiah had come to deal with sin. That's why he came. To deal with sin. This is one of the greatest statements, one of the greatest blessings that could be given to the fallen human race. But it is also one of the greatest indictments of the sinfulness of humanity. The human heart is wicked It is not only wicked, it is desperately wicked. And no one knows the depths to which it can plunge in its sinfulness. Now we look back at history, we've seen some horrible things happen in history. But I can tell you that the worst is yet to come. The worst will happen in a seven year span of time called the tribulation. And in that span of time, the human heart will go to its depths. So much so, that if God did not shorten those days, no human flesh would survive it. Jeremiah 17 Verse 9 says it is desperately wicked. And Paul gives that same indictment in Romans chapter 3 when he says no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. There is no one on earth that does any good. Don't let anyone fool you. There's no goodness in fallen humanity. The only goodness fallen humanity has is the goodness and righteousness of Christ when when He redeems them. So from heaven's perspective, there are no good people. Now, we say, oh, they're a good person. He's a good, good man or a good woman. They're good boys or girls. And we know what that means from a human perspective. Some people can be more good than others. But from heaven's perspective, that is not true. 
The description here is of the world. That's why he uses this word. The word world in Scripture has a variety of meanings. Now, we've studied this in the past here at Bethany, but I'm just going to briefly give an overview of it without going too deep into it this morning. We'll get a chance to go deeper probably. But the word world is used in many different ways in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament. It's used in Acts 17 to speak of the universe as a whole. It's used in John 13 and Ephesians 1 to speak of the earth as in uh, terra firma, the, the actual planet itself. It's used in John 12, Matthew 4, and 1 John 5 to speak of the world system, the way the world operates, the system that it runs by. It's used in Romans 3 to speak of the whole of the human race. It's used in uh, John 15 and Romans 3 and John 5 to speak of humanity minus believers. In Romans 11, it's used to speak of Gentiles in contrast to Jews. In John 18 verse 20, it's used of Jews only. And in John 6, John 12, 2 Corinthians 5, just a few samplings, it's used to speak of believers only. John's use of this word is varied throughout his writings in the gospel and in his his epistles. Twenty-six times he uses it to refer to the earth. Three times he uses it to refer to the Jews and Gentiles specifically. Twelve times he refers to believers and unbelievers in the world or all humanity. Three times he uses the word to refer to the world system in particular. Thirty-one times he uses it with reference to the wicked without including believers, which is his most common use of it. And eleven times he uses it to speak of the world of the elect, that is, God's chosen people. Here in verse 29, he uses this word to refer to all humanity in general without any distinction. He's not distinguishing one group over another. He's talking about the world in general. That is, all tribes, nations, people groups, ethnic boundaries, sexes, skin colors. That's what he's talking about when he says that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's not talking about, he is not saying that Jesus takes away every person's sin. We know from other biblical passages that is not what this teaches. That would be universalism. And even though his sacrificial death is sufficient to save everyone, it is only effectual for saving those who believe in him. John John 3 verse 18. Turn with me. Just these are... Most of these are in John. You can just flip a few pages. John 3 verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why is he condemned already? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 3 36. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So now we have obeying, obedience to the Son of God tied to believing in Him. That's why we say people who are truly saved can't just go out and live their lives any old way they want to and just just keep on sinning and say they're Christians. That doesn't work that way. John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes on him who sent me has eternal life and will not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So there be no death, no eternal death for those who have believed. John 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I'll raise Him up on the last day. There's the promise of resurrection. That's why He said to Martha, Though He were dead, yet shall He live. And He illustrated it by raising Lazarus from the dead. 1 Corinthians one twenty one. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know Him through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those what who believe, who believe. <clears throat> also in Galatians three verse twenty two. So this is not speaking of unit. It's not speaking of universalism at all. Since the Bible teaches that there will be and there is now an eternal hell and the unbelieving will spend eternity suffering the penalty of their sins and rebellion in hell, it's certainly, uh, universalism is certainly not a biblical teaching. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Who are the righteous? They are the ones who believe. They are the ones who obey. Second Thessalonians 1, they suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And Revelation 14, Revelation 20, over and over again, the scriptures teach that the unbelieving will end up in hell. And by the way, there are so many that, unbelie- that are unbelieving that hell is enlarged every single day by their number. In fact, the scriptures teach that there will be very few in comparison to the masses of humanity even though the number is great, there will be very few that will enter into life through the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many that go in. Many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, one more thing before I close. I've got two, three minutes here. I want you to notice one of the most beautiful parts of this verse. 
And it's found in the two little words, takes away. Takes away. It is the Greek, the Greek word here means to remove something that is fastened heavily upon something else. Like removing a big piece of concrete with a crane. Crane comes in, hooks to the, this heavy thing and lifts it away, lifts it off, moves it away so that it's no longer there. This is the idea by pushing, lifting, or taking off something. This is the symbol that John uses again in 1 John 3, 5. You know that he appeared, that is Christ appeared to take away sins. Pilgrim did his whole journey with that heavy weight of sin upon his back. Until he came to the cross. And then what happened? The sin rolled off of his back and down the hill. And he never had to carry it again. If you're here today as a believer in Christ, you don't have to carry your sins around. They've been removed. They've been taken away. They've been lifted off by the Son of God Himself. It's also present tense. This is, I think this is the best part of this whole verse. It's present tense, indicating that the Lamb of God is continually taking away our sins. Oh yes, He does it once and for all by His sacrifice on the cross. But in our walking through this life, in our sanctification, we are constantly sinning and, and getting ourselves dirty. And he comes along and continually takes it away. Listen to 1 John 1 verse 7. If we walk in the light, he is, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses. Present tense. Cleanses. Constantly is cleansing us from all sin that's why you can come in here you can confess your sins before him and he cleanses you and you are able to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner John Trapp the the Puritan writer writes this This signifies the ongoing, this present tense signifies the ongoing sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice and the fact that it is available at all times for every sinner who will trust in Him. It should be as a perpetual picture in our hearts. As we multiply sins, He multiplies pardons. And that's the truth of it. That great scene in Revelation 12 depicts Satan, the serpent who deceived the whole world. What a bleak, depressing scenario it is. He's ever before the throne of God accusing the saints of their sins and shortcomings. But then there is this wonderful announcement. Listen to what it says. I heard a voice in heaven saying, 
Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accused them night and day before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Doesn't matter what happens to us here. The blood of the Son of God has cleansed us from our sins and He is still doing that for us. Even today. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I trust that you know him this morning. If you don't, I would be glad to speak with you about your own soul and eternity if you'll come to me. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you that we can come and worship. Thank you for the good music, the praises, the hymns that we sang, for being able to observe the Lord's Supper, for being able to give of our of our uh, monies that and things that you have given to us, to be able to pray. And to preach, Lord, this is a blessing. It's a miracle of God. And so I pray, Lord, that you would use this time to speak to all of our hearts. To to break up the stony places. And cause us to fall before you in confession. And draw near to you. I pray, Lord, that you would save the lost. And revive your people for the work that you have called them to until you come. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.